You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights on RAND's latest research and commentary. It's February 12th. For decades, efforts to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have been dominated by the idea of working toward a two-state solution. But what do average Israelis and Palestinians think about a two-state solution? And are there alternatives that they would support? To find out, RAND researchers conducted focus groups with more than 270 West Bank Palestinians, Gazan Palestinians, Israeli Jews, and Israeli Arabs. Our researchers asked participants about five options, including a two-state solution. None of the alternatives were acceptable to a majority of both Israelis and Palestinians. And while the two-state solution was the most viable alternative, all four groups voiced skepticism toward it. More specifically, Israelis across the political spectrum preferred the status quo to the two-state solution, while Palestinians were only willing to accept a two-state solution that Israelis would not accept. These findings highlight the deep distrust and profound animosity on both sides of this long-standing conflict. They also suggest that a resolution will likely require more holistic peace deals than have been previously suggested. As one of the lead authors, C. Ross Anthony, put it, quote, It's hard to imagine a departure from current trends unless strong, courageous leadership among Israelis, Palestinians, and the international community articulates a desire for a better future for all. The availability of safe and effective vaccines seems like a game-changer in the battle against COVID-19. But new and more transmissible variants of the virus are emerging around the world. We've already seen evidence that existing vaccines are not as effective against these new variants. And if some countries don't receive timely access to the vaccines, then the virus will continue to spread in some populations, mutate further, and potentially render existing vaccines less effective. Or even worse, vaccines could become ineffective against some mutations. This is why, RAND experts say, international collaboration on vaccine distribution is more important than ever. But unfortunately, global coordination is already lacking. We're seeing what researchers call vaccine nationalism, where high-income governments are stockpiling vaccines to ensure that they can vaccinate their populations now and in the immediate future. And if new or updated vaccines are required to mitigate against new variants of the virus, then stockpiling may continue. This behavior could prolong the pandemic, tragically increasing the death toll and the number of people who experience long-term illness. Vaccine nationalism could also reduce global economic output. The cost of this lost output, in fact, is far greater than the cost of making vaccines available globally. RAND experts calculated that high-income countries could get back nearly $5 for every $1 spent on supplying vaccines to low-income nations. In short, we all want to get back to normal. But that may not be possible for any of us until it's possible for all of us, no matter where in the world we happen to live. 
On Wednesday, President Biden announced U.S. sanctions against the generals who directed the coup in Myanmar earlier this month. Biden also urged the military to relinquish power and respect the results of Myanmar's recent election. According to Rand's Jonah Blank, sanctions are unlikely to reverse the coup, but that doesn't mean that they won't have an impact. Sanctions send a message to the rest of the world, he says. Violations of global norms will have consequences. While there are no easy solutions in Myanmar, sanctions are one aspect of a, quote, tough-minded approach in support of democracy and human rights that has the greatest chance of achieving progress there. Such an approach could also help deter other countries from carrying out such blatant violations of universal standards. U.S. service members who experience sexual assault or sexual harassment face a wide range of mental and physical harms. A new RAND report, the latest in our series on this topic, highlights yet another negative effect of these crimes, higher rates of attrition and harms to force readiness. According to the report, Sexual assaults double the odds of service members separating from the military within a 28-month period, and sexual harassment was associated with roughly 8% of all military separations during that same time period. This trend also affects service members financially. Those who leave the military lose out on considerable compensation related to retirement and deferred benefits. The report recommends that the Department of Defense prioritize prevention and response to sexual harassment, ensure that training and prevention materials highlight that both men and women are targeted, and continue investigating how sexual assault reporting affects the risk of separating from the military. As peace talks between the Taliban and Kabul continue with little progress, the U.S. faces a May deadline to withdraw all of its troops from Afghanistan. The hope was that, by May of this year, the Afghan government and the Taliban would have reached a peace agreement. But according to Rand's James Dobbins, it's no surprise that negotiations between the two parties have progressed so slowly. The timetable to reach a deal was always unrealistically ambitious, he says. So, where exactly do the peace negotiations stand? Just months before the scheduled removal of U.S. troops, the Taliban and the Afghan government have not even agreed on a common agenda. And the American military presence is the principal source of U.S. influence over these negotiations. Not to mention, the only hope of leaving behind a stable government capable of denying sanctuary to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. For these reasons, delaying the U.S. troop withdrawal may be one way to give peace a chance in Afghanistan, says Dobbins. A delay could give Kabul and the Taliban more time to address core issues that must be resolved if any settlement is to stick. It might be the Afghan people's only hope of preserving the economic, social, and political gains of the last 20 years. The first, and hopefully last, Valentine's Day of the COVID-19 era is just a couple of days away. So it's a good time to talk about couples' sleep strategies. And who better to advise us than Rand's Wendy Troxel, a sleep scientist? Troxel says that the pandemic and the stress that comes along with it can intensify sleep problems. And if you have a partner, then those sleep problems can negatively affect your relationship, which in turn can cause even more sleep problems. 
Troxel has some tips for how to avoid this vicious cycle. For example, she says that even the healthiest of couples can benefit from some space away from each other. That alone time could be at night when you're sleeping. But regardless of whether you decide to sleep together or apart, the key is to have open and honest communication about your needs. This will help avoid making your partner feel hurt or rejected, which is a pretty good way to show your love on Valentine's Day. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.